You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. So here we are, end of the book. We made it. And we got here through a whole bunch of sadness, didn't we? I mean, there was like a stretch there where I was getting tired because it was just a, a lot of darkness. You know, we walked slowly through seeing the Lord crucified, and then we spent the last few weeks seeing him resurrected, and now it's getting intimate. We saw him way up here, and then last week, Pastor Brett brought us into this passage where he appears at the seaside in his glorified form to his friends, and he cooks them breakfast. And it's interesting to me that we're going to end book of 21 chapters where we see all this majesty and all this goodness and all this miracle and it ends around a fire on the beach with the risen Lord Jesus feeding breakfast to his friends. And I would imagine that for John that he ended his gospel account this way. He said it himself, I can't write everything. It would take, it would fill the world for me to write all the books. So he ends it here. Why does John end it here? What stood out about this interaction that John's like, yeah, that's it. That's where I put my pen down. I want to lead us into that place this morning. And first, I got to go backwards. I warned you when I preached like six weeks ago that I'm counting on you forgetting some of the stuff because I alluded to some of this passage, but I'm going to repeat it because I think we need to hear it. This last interaction that is documented in this gospel account is between Jesus and Peter. And I think Peter is a very fitting character for the gospel account to end on, because we get a lot of details about Peter, and Peter was a mess. Peter looks a lot like you and I. To give you like a breakneck recap of the life of Peter, I mean, three years before these events, He's called off of a fishing boat. Jesus appears and he says, follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. And Peter leaves everything behind. He follows Jesus for three years on this earth. And if you've been with Mercy's Door for the last 15 months, you've known, you've read, you've, you've heard preached over you what those three years contained. Peter saw it all, all these things that I preached over you this year, that Pastor Brett preached over you this year. Peter saw it all with his eyes. He saw people raised from the dead. He saw sight restored to the blind. He saw a lame man walk. He saw Jesus walk on water. He saw Jesus multiply the bread and the loaves to feed the 5,000. He saw Jesus speak to a storm and the wind and the waves obey him. He saw Jesus cast out demons. He saw Jesus transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. Like Peter, three years, eyewitness account to the whole life and ministry of Jesus. And his confidence builds in this Messiah. In fact, he's the very first to say to Jesus, you are the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah. He sees all this play out, all this theater play out, and it becomes abundantly clear to him who this is. But I preached it to you guys several weeks ago that Peter, while he loved and adored and was so inspired by the conquering Messiah and all of these miracles, that he loathed the suffering Messiah. 
that he had an impulse to pull back every time that the Lord Jesus humbled himself, every time that he lowered himself, every time that he would speak about what he had come to do and accomplish, chiefly when he would talk about being lifted up, the Son of Man being lifted up and laying down his life for the sins of the world. Peter wanted no part of that part of the Messiah. So much so that he literally rebukes him at one point for talking like that, and Jesus has to pull him aside, and he says to him, get behind me, Satan, for your mind is on the things of the world and not on the things of God. And yet this is the nature of Peter, right? Like we would see that in the upper room just several days ago before this event, that when Jesus kneels down to wash his disciples' feet, that Peter refuses him. He says, by no means. And Jesus has to convince him to let him wash his feet. When he is betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane and the band of soldiers show up, what does Peter do? He pulls out a sword and he starts swinging. And you might look at that and be like, well, Peter was ready to die for Jesus. Go, Peter. But Pastor Brett preached it brilliantly. No, he was zealous enough to kill for Jesus, but he did not love him enough to die for him. Not really, because in that moment, we have to imagine that Peter looked at the, he, he was like, numbers be damned, pardon my, my French there, but I got the guy who speaks to the wind and the waves with me. So when he pulled that sword, he's thinking, I got, I got Jesus with me here. And so when Jesus tells Peter to put the sword away and he heals the guy that Peter swung at, everything changed for Peter in that moment, didn't it? He wasn't so brave anymore. Now instead, he sneaks in the side door of the courtyard of Annas, going back four or five weeks now, and when a servant girl asks him around a charcoal fire whether or not he is a disciple of Jesus, what does he do? He denies him three times. This is the same Peter who in the upper room, like earlier that day, had told Jesus, well, they, these may all deny you. I will never leave you. I will follow you even to my death. And Jesus tells him, Peter, you won't even follow me to my death. You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And then we read in Peter's story that that's exactly what happens. They ask him, this little girl, servant girl, asks him, aren't you one of his disciples? Three times. He says, you got me confused for someone else. I'm not with him. I'm not with him. I'm not with him. And Luke tells us that when he denied him the third time, immediately the rooster crowed, and Jesus peers across the courtyard, makes eye contact with Peter. Peter weeps bitterly and flees from that place. And by all indications, Peter never saw him crucified. We don't see him again until after the resurrection. So Peter believed big in the resurrected, conquering Messiah but he had no category for the suffering Messiah, and so he had these glorious moments, and he had these moments of great failure. And so it makes a lot of sense to me that the gospel account would conclude with a story about Jesus and Peter. That's literally how this section is labeled in, in my Bible, just called Jesus and Peter. Because you'll remember that when Jesus was resurrected, that the angel tells the women to go and gather his disciples and Peter and tell them that he is coming to meet with them. And I had held out to you guys the question, why would they have to say, go gather the disciples and Peter? And I preached to you that the reason for that was because it would have been unclear to Peter if they just showed up and said, Jesus wants the disciples to come, if Jesus means Peter. Because 
Jesus had seen Peter with his eyes deny him three times in his hour of greatest need. If Jesus just says, go get my disciples, does Peter know if he means him at this point? Because I renounced him. Three times he saw me do it. And so with great love, he tells the women, go gather the disciples and Peter. And there have been appearances since then, haven't there? So we've been spending the last couple of weeks looking at these appearances. Jesus two times has appeared to the disciples in various ways. This is going to be the third time here at the seaside. And in those appearances, where were they? They had gone to meet Jesus at the tomb, right? No. They were locked behind a door, hiding for fear of the Jews. And Jesus appears behind the locked door. Peter's there. He speaks to them, and he says what? Kind of the same thing as what he said to Peter when he called him off the boat in the first place. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. He says to them when, he res- when he's in the resurrected form, he says to them that I am, just as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And so after he says that, they go, and they, they're sent, right? No. Eight days later, Jesus shows up. They're still behind a locked door. But Thomas is there, and Jesus does it again. And so there's just been this story of essentially Jesus giving promises and commands, even showing them his resurrected self, and yet it is not yet enough to compel them into the mission that he has for them, is it? And then he tells them at one of the appearances before this that after Jesus ascends from the grave that he is going to appear to them in Galilee. And he even tells them specifically the side of which mountain he wants them to go to Galilee and wait for him on. And here last week, Pastor Brett is preaching, and they're there waiting for him on the side of the mountain, right? Wrong. Peter says, I'm going fishing. (laughs) And he's fishing in Galilee, not waiting for him on the side, on the location where Jesus told him to wait. And so where does Jesus go? He goes to the seaside, and he finds him there. And what I want to hold out to you guys this morning is that it was no accident that Jesus said to, told, commanded the disciples to go back to Galilee and to wait for him there. Peter was from Galilee. He sent Peter back to his old stomping grounds. He sent Peter back to his hometown. He sent Peter back to where it all began in order to stage this interaction. And I want you to hold on to that detail because it's going to be significant as we look at the restoration of Peter. Because if we hold these intention and we say, Jesus loved, or Peter loved the conquering Jesus, but he pulls back from the suffering Jesus, and there's now been much suffering, and he failed out of his calling. He denied him three times. And he, is not, he does not have clarity, even as he's beheld the resurrected Jesus, where exactly he stands with this Jesus. He needs restoration. He needs the care of his Lord. But instead of waiting for him at the side of the mountain, he is found fishing. And he's called off of the boat. I'm just summarizing for Pastor Brett from last week. So he's called off of the boat. He's out there. And I want you to know that when it says the boat, we're talking about Peter's boat, almost certainly. He's back at his old stopping grounds on his sea, the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee. And it doesn't say that he got into a boat to go fishing. That would have made a lot more sense. It doesn't really come through in the English. It says that they got into the boat, 
without telling us about a boat in this passage because they're implying that it's a boat we already know. It's the boat, the boat in the Sea of Galilee, the boat that Peter is called out of, the boat that Peter had spent a whole life fishing out of in Galilee. He gets into the boat and he goes fishing all night long and he catches nothing and Jesus appears in the morning. He says, children, have you caught anything? Why don't you try tossing them on the right side of the boat? And they do that and they pull in what? 253 fish and John's like, it's the Lord. And Peter's like, what? He throws off his garment. He jumps into the water, swims to the shore. He's, he, he gets to Jesus. He doesn't even want to wait for the boat dragging 253 fish to get 100 yards back to the shore. He's, he's going to swim it and he shows up on the garment and he's welcomed by Jesus. And Jesus has cooked him breakfast. He says in verse 12, come and have breakfast. And he came and he took bread and he gave it to them and so with the fish. And that gets us up to our passage this morning. So you've got Peter traversing this story, this three years culminating at a breakfast on the beach around a fire where Jesus has cooked him fish and made him bread and is serving it to him. And there's a gospel theater at play here. Jesus is intentionally replaying a whole bunch of events. Let's go back to Galilee. They're only there because he said to go there. Let's go back to Galilee, back to that sea, back to that boat, back to that beach. I am going to have you, I'm going to replay the fish miracle, which they were very familiar with. I'm going to have you grab one of those fish and bring it to me, and I'm going to serve it to you. I'm going to break bread. I'm going to point you back to the upper room where I instituted the Lord's Supper three nights ago and reminded you this is my body broken for you. I'm going to feed this to you. I'm going to have you gather around a charcoal fire. I preached this to you six weeks ago or so when I said this word for charcoal fire only appears twice in the whole Bible. Once when Peter is warming himself by a charcoal fire, denying Jesus three times, and once when he is sitting around a charcoal fire at breakfast three days later, asking, and Jesus is asking three times, do you love me? And he's saying, I love you. Our Lord is intimately interested in the details of Peter's story in order that he can give him the restoration that he needs. Peter has fallen from his status before Christ, at least in his own mind. And Jesus is tending to three significant needs in this passage. Jesus is tending to his hungry belly. He is tending to his broken heart. And he is tending to his sinful soul. And this is what I want to hold out to you as we move our way through the passage. And so they finished breakfast, verse 15. When they'd finished this breakfast, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, you can interpret these in one of two ways. They're both valid, but I'm going to tell you which one's right in my mind. These is sometimes said to mean the other disciples. He looks out and he gestures towards the other disciples. He says, do you love me more than these? And that makes some sense. It's definitely in keeping with Peter's character because he had just claimed to love Jesus more than them, like three days ago when he said, they might, they might all fall away, but I never will. And so here, of course, now he's failed. And Jesus may be digging into that. Be like, do you love me more than these? I don't think so, though. I think it's the other one. The other interpretation, it's funnier, but it makes more sense, is he's pointing to the fish and the boat and the sea 
and Galilee and the old life and the old comforts that Peter was returning to. And he's as gestures to the fish, the 253 of them, a whole lot of fish. Gestures to the whole lot of fish. Peter's a fisherman. Gestures to the boat, gestures to the Sea of Galilee. Do you love me more than these? This thing that you've returned to. And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And I need to hold out to you guys as a challenge for all of us in the church that maybe for you, Jesus would ask you the same thing. That he would gesture out at your little world, your boat, your nets, your old stomping grounds, your comforts and your familiarity, and he would ask you, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? And maybe for you it's not 253 fish, but it's $253,000 in my 401k. Maybe for you it's not a boat. Maybe it is a boat. Maybe you really love your boat. I don't have a boat. Maybe it's your home. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your retirement account. Maybe it's whatever, but Jesus could put his finger on it, the things that you've surrounded yourself with, the comforts that you retreat to, the familiarity that you retreat to, and that he would say, Joseph, do you love me more than these? Seku, do you love me more than your pool and your garden? It's a great pool. It's a great garden. Do you love me more than these? Brett, do you love me more than your white picket fence and no snakes in the yard? You work hard for that. Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, I was reading that some commentators observed that when Jesus asks, do you love me, he uses the highest form of love in the question in the Greek. And that when Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, he uses a lesser form of love to answer him. I hold that out to you because that may be significant. I'm not sure that it is. Because linguistically it shows up in this way in lots of different times because the words can be interchangeable. But it's very possible that Jesus is asking him, do you love me most? And Peter is answering, you know I like you a whole lot. And that seems consistent with Peter. And he certainly probably didn't feel like he could claim to love Jesus the most since his actions had demonstrated otherwise. And Jesus asked him a second time, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he says, yes, Lord, you know. And then he asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And at this point, Peter is grieved because he asks him the third time, do you love me? And so I think that when you see that Peter is grieved, that tells us something about the state of his heart in this line of questioning. I think he probably feels seen. He probably feels outed, like, why do you feel the need to ask me three times? I think we both know what we're getting at here. Jesus, you know everything, but you do know that I love you. But no, I guess I don't love you as fully as I ought. In church, none of us do. And yet, whatever measure that we do love him, Jesus is aware of it. Peter declares something that is true. Jesus, you do know. Another thing that stands out to me in this back and forth interaction, do you love me? Yes, I do. Do you love me? Yes, I do. Do you love me? Yes, I do. He's calling him Simon, son of John. 
which is Peter's name before Jesus renamed him and commissioned him as a disciple. I think this also tells us a whole lot about the state of Peter when he goes out on that boat. He wasn't just on the boat because he was hungry, looking for a fish. He had retreated into his old identity. And Jesus highlights this by calling him by his former name, Simon, son of John. Not Peter the Rock, Simon, son of John. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me more than these? And each time that he answers yes, he gives him a command, a question and then a command. Do you love me? Yes. Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Tend my sheep or shepherd my sheep. Do you love me? He said to them, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus commands him, feed my sheep. And as Jesus issues these commands to Peter, what he's doing is he's creating the first shepherd, the first earthly shepherd, the first pastor. He's commissioning Peter not just back into his status as a disciple, but he's commissioning him now into a very specific role to be the first shepherd in the church era. This is, the, this is going to be the beginning of the church era, the era that we are in today. More specifically, it'll happen at Pentecost. But he's calling Peter into becoming the very first shepherd. And there's one requirement. Do you love me? And this next section of the sermon is for me, and it's for Pastor Brett, and it's for Pastor Dude, and it's for Pastor Mike, and it's really for any of you who would ever desire to be a shepherd, and then it's for the rest of you just to know what it is that Jesus says and requires of the church shepherds. And the first is this, requirement number one, you've got to love Jesus. Like, that's the big job qualification here. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, tend my lambs. Do you love me? Yes, feed my sheep. That's what you will do, shepherd, if you love Jesus. Which means that the primary occupation of my heart as a shepherd must be to, to tenderly care for my relationship with Jesus, because if I don't love him, I can't love you. And so every morning, Sunday morning, I get up at 5.30 in the morning, and I go up to the church office, and I spend about four hours in prayer for you guys. Because I know I am not of any use to you in obedience to what Christ calls me to do, to feed you, if I don't love him. And if I don't love him, I can't love you. And so for four hours, I'm just asking him on Sunday mornings, let me love you and give me your love for them in order that I might obey you and feed them. And so that's what I do up here when I'm preaching is I'm feeding. And when, and when Pastor Brett is, is leading us through a liturgy of songs that are all drawn from the word, he is feeding. And when we do confession and assurance of pardon and when we issue communion, we are feeding. And when we go out into GC and we administer the word into everyday life, we are feeding. We're trying to obey this call of Jesus on shepherds to feed the lambs. But the prerequisite is you got to love him. God love him. But there's this great relief where he says something very clarifying. You got to hear it. He says, feed my lambs, my lambs, my sheep. 
Church, you need to hear me say this, and Pastor Brett and Dude and Mike, you've got to hear it. You guys are not my sheep. You are not Brett's sheep. You are not Dude's sheep. You are not Mike's sheep. You are the Lord's sheep. You are his flock, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, and he did that for you, and I cannot. And even if I could, it would just be a death. I couldn't, it wouldn't affect anything for you. He laid down his life for you. He purchased you with a great price. You are his sheep. I am his sheep. We are the flock of God, ransomed by the power of the Holy Spirit. You're his. And shepherds are given a role within the flock of God to feed the lambs. To feed them. Well, feed them what? Becomes the next question. And I'd like to clear this up as well. When Jesus was tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, the deceiver tried to tempt him into taking a stone and turning it into a loaf of bread. Remember this? And Jesus says, Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So I take from this, along with many other scriptures, that one of the things, one of the main things that shepherds are to feed the sheep is the word of God, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And it's for this reason that we preach left to right through the whole books of the Bible, because we want you to have to eat up all the words that have proceeded from God. We say with the psalmist, we need to taste and see that the Lord is good. We feed you the goodness of the Lord. Matthew 26, verse 26, when Jesus is implementing the Lord's Supper, he says this, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, and he said, take and eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. When we take the Lord's Supper together, we are feeding the sheep. We feed you the word of God. We feed you Jesus. And this is the right thing for shepherds to be focusing on. Shepherds are not everything. Like Shepherds are not like the social media guy right? And like, like the pastor is not like all of the like job descriptions that the, sometimes the Western church like to, likes to pack on to the title. Like the role of a shepherd, lay shepherd, staff shepherd, everyone. The thing that Jesus calls his shepherds to is to feeding sheep. Feeding sheep, ministering over sheep with the word of God and prayers. And this I take from, just to give a, even further clarification, I take from Acts chapter 6 where in Acts chapter 6, let me find it. There is an issue that arises. It says that in these days, 6 1, Acts chapter 6, verse 1, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, the church is growing quickly, complaints from the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So in the early church, the church had gathered together and they had divided up all that they had in order that no one would have need. And there was this daily distribution of bread that would go out to make sure that nobody was hungry. And most likely, the head of the household would go and gather the daily distribution. And so the widows were being skipped. Those who did not have a husband were not getting a daily distribution. And so this is brought to the attention 
of the shepherds. And so the twelve summoned the full number of disciples, so the church, all of those, and they said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve the tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and they chose Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. And so you see the creation of the deacon. Because the Lord cares intimately not only about those things which he asks the shepherds to do, which is to singularly focus in on the ministry of the word and the prayers, but he also cares that the widows aren't being skipped in the daily distribution of the bread and all the other things that that can represent, that the church be cared for, that our needs be met by other members of the church. And so as one body, the shepherds called out to the body and they said, hey, it's not okay that this is happening. It's just also that if we then have to make sure that this doesn't happen, then that means that this other thing is being neglected. And that wouldn't be right. So go and select from among you faithful people who can make this happen. And they did, and the shepherds laid hands, and the deacon is born. And so a biblical church that is carrying out all of the care and feeding within the body that that Christ desires to see requires shepherds and deacons and members all as one body carrying out the will of God to love the flock among you. You understand? And I hold that out to say to you that if there are unmet needs and you've been given eyes to see them in the body, the Lord may have given you eyes to see them in order that you can bring it forward, in order that the shepherds can then say, appoint for yourselves some people and we will lay hands and we will make that happen. It might be you is what I'm trying to get at. It might be you. And I say this and not because this has been the culture of mercy's door, praise be to God, but certainly the culture in the Western church has been to structure the church like a business where everything kind of flows from the leadership at the top. But the picture that we get in the Bible is that the Lord calls all of the roles and responsibilities within the church good, and he calls it to be a burden bore by all. And so I want to invite you guys to embrace that vision to say it is good for the shepherds to be, uh, to be focused on the ministry of the word and of the prayers because they're called by God and they'll give an account for the way that they fed us. And so we want to help to make sure that all of the cares of ministry are being carried out as well. Does that make sense? Okay. And so we are to feed you guys. I want to do that. I had pulled some some passages about it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul talking about feeding a young, and, a young and rebellious church, the church in Corinth, he says, I fed you with milk and not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For when one says, I follow Paul, or another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? And this, to me, draws attention about what it means to be fed. 
The shepherd, if he loves the sheep, will feed milk to those who are still on milk, and he will feed solid food to those who are ready for solid food. This isn't so much a criticism of somebody who is on milk, but it's to say if you're on milk, you can't handle solid food. And so we would be sensitive to that and care about that because to try to give somebody solid food who's not ready for solid food can actually confuse the whole thing. And here what we see is somebody who's saying, I follow Paul and I follow Apollos, the Corinthian church had started to love aligning themselves with discipleship of a man and not with Christ. And so Paul's like, we got to go back to the basics here. You are disciples of Jesus, Christ alone. And it is in him that you, it's him who you are to follow. Not me, not Apollos, but him. And until we get that right, I can't teach you all of the other things. And well, what is solid food? What is solid food? First Peter chapter 2 This is helpful because Peter's the guy who Jesus said this to. Peter writes, Like newborn infants long for spiritual milk, so this is a good thing, that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So milk is the good news of the gospel, the spiritual milk that nourishes, by which you taste and see that the Lord is good. But having received it, then the scales fall off and you come to desire all that comes with calling Jesus your king. See, he said in the Great Commission, in Matthew 28, you know this, that we are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that Christ commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And Paul, or not Paul, but our author in Hebrews writes in chapter 5, about this last part of the Great Commission, it's in a chapter where he's writing about obedience to Christ. He says, about obedience to Christ, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And so what our writer in Hebrews is saying is that there comes a time where it's time to talk about obedience to Christ. But it's not before you have understood the gospel. It is not before you've understood the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And so all of us are somewhere in that journey, but I want you to know that God has called the shepherds to feed the sheep, either milk or solid food. And your responsibility is to eat, eat, and eat in order that you would be presented mature before the throne of grace on that day. And this is what Paul wrote about in Colossians chapter 1. It'll be my last cross-reference for today. In verse 24 to 29, he says, of Christ's body, that is the church, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints, that means Christians, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all this energy that he, Jesus, powerfully works 
within me. Do you see the way that this works out? The ambition of Paul's whole ministry was that he would proclaim Christ to the Gentiles. We're Gentiles. That he would proclaim Christ to the Gentiles that we might behold this glorious mystery of Christ in us, the hope of glory, that we would then be presented mature in Christ because he taught us all in wisdom. That was his toil. That was his work, he said. And yet it was a work that he credited to the Holy Spirit because he said it was he who powerfully worked in me. If this is not clarifying for you, then we can spend some more time on it. But I want you to understand that we're not just like preaching sermons because it's what you do on Sunday. We don't just study the Bible because it's what you do, right? It's the call of Jesus on shepherds to feed the sheep the word. And so it's right for us to study it and to know it and to love it and delight it and behold it and give Jesus to you guys that you might eat it up. But there's a point that comes that, that our writer talks about that there's a point where it's like, hey, you ought to be teachers now. Like there's a, that's supposed to be a desire in the shepherd to see the sheep growing up healthy. And so if you're still on milk after a decade or something like that, it should grieve the heart of the shepherd because we desire to see you guys growing in maturity, that more of you guys would be presented mature, that more of you would be like, I'm ready to lead a gospel community or to lead a GC or to be a deacon or to be an elder or to plant a church or whatever. Not all because we're called to different roles, but not because you couldn't, because you were still a child, just because that wasn't your calling. That would be all right, right? But we actually have ambitions to see the church growing up in all wisdom and knowledge of Christ Jesus, just not at the cost of the gospel. And so we want to get that right first. And to that end, Jesus says, verse 18, that was a long tangent, sorry. Truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. I love that. What kind of death he was to glorify God. He tells Peter, you're going to be crucified. And church history testifies that he was. He says, this is the kind of death that you are going to glorify me with. I kind of love that for Peter. It's like, I don't love it, but I kind of love it. Because Peter had said, I'll follow you even unto death. And Jesus had restored all the other stuff. And it included that. You will follow me into death. You're going to glorify me by dying the same way I did. And this Peter who before couldn't stand before a servant girl and say that he was with Christ will one day go to his own cross professing Christ. And what changed is what we've been preaching for weeks now, the Holy Spirit in him, the resurrected Christ sending the power of God and the Holy Spirit into the church. After saying this to him, he said, follow me. And this is me repeating the words to you, church. Follow him. Follow him. So how does Peter respond? At this point, he definitely gets it, right? No. Peter turns, and he saw the disciple who Jesus loved following them. He sees John, and he's jealous of John. He's the one who also, he's the one at the supper had leaned up against him and said, like, who's going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he says to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? 
So Jesus has just told him he's going to be crucified. <laughs> he looks at John. He's like, what about John? <laughs> <laughs> and Jesus says to Peter, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And this is super comforting to me, and it ought to be comforting to you. This is also a word for the other shepherds, but it's really for all of us. Comparison is a thief of joy. For you to look out at the other disciples, to look out at the other shepherds, to look at the other peoples and, what they, and the lot that they were given, the calling that was put on their life, and to be like, man, I want to compare my lot to your lot. Listen, the boundary lines of our God have fallen in pleasant places. He knows what he is doing, and he has looked after you. He has tended very intimately here to Peter's tummy and Peter's heart and to Peter's soul. He's clearly for him. And so for Peter to look up from that moment and the great care of the hand of his Lord over to someone else's bowl and want to compare my bowl to his bowl to determine whether or not I'm getting a good deal here, it is to rob from him the goodness of Christ in his lot. He has not made a mistake. He has not made a mistake in your lot and he has not made a mistake in mine. If I look out at another preacher and I want his charisma and I want his intellect and I want his ability and I want, I want all of that. If I look at another man's church and I want his church and I want his building and I want their money and I want their whatever, I want their success, right? This is all me rejecting the lot that God has given to me, his pleasant lot where his goodness is poured out in me and my life and you and yours. And so we try not to do that to whatever degree that we can. But this is pretty much the strongest rebuke that I see Jesus give. If it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? What he's saying is, you're going to be crucified. And if I desire that John never die, what is that to you? He, like, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying, you know, and John feels the need to clarify this, and that makes sense to me because John's getting old when he wrote this. And so people are probably, like, watching to see if he dies or not. And he's like, listen, I know people have been saying that I'm not going to die. <laughs> but that's not what he said. He said, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Just to clear that up. But Jesus escalates the language. He says, you want to know what's going to happen to him? If I want him to go right now with me to glory. That's my business. You follow me. So Jesus doesn't even entertain the question. And church, I want you to see kind of the rebuke of Jesus there in order that you can consider whether or not you need that rebuke in your life. Do you quietly accuse the Lord of making the boundary lines of your life fall in unpleasant places like somehow he's given you a raw deal? Have you looked over at your neighbor's bowl and said, I want that? I can understand it. I know that place. But Jesus says it again, you follow me. And that's what Peter did. At Pentecost, he would preach the first gospel sermon to the very people who crucified Jesus, and that very day, the church would be born in Jerusalem, and he would become the first shepherd. He would write epistles that teach us today, including so much language that is clarifying for me about what it means to be a shepherd. Peter teaches at length about how to do that, and it's helpful to me. He followed Jesus faithfully, and he's taught others how to do that, praise be to God, by the power of the Spirit. And so this rumor spreads about John. It wasn't true. 
verse 24, but this is the disciple, John is the disciple, bearing witness about these things, who has written these things, and we know the testimony is true. And we, the whole world would be filled with books if I wrote down all the things, but these are written, flipping back, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name, mercy's door. When we close this gospel account here in a minute, you will have received over the course of 15 months everything that you need to be saved. Everything that you need to be saved is contained in this book. They were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. And this has been my earnest prayer for you this morning and all year long, that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that you would have life in his name. I'm not talking about an academic exercise. Let this be the day that you turn away from an academic Christianity. Listen, even the demons can tell you the truth about Jesus that he lived, that he died, that he rose. That's not the point. I'm not asking you to be a historian. What Jesus says is you must have faith in him to believe that he lived a perfect life for you, that he died a sacrificial death for you, taking your sin into the grave with him, that he rose for you. The Holy Spirit in you, uniting you to the risen Christ, is the only path to life in his name. You must be united with him, not merely know about him. You must be one with him by faith. And so if you've never placed your faith in Christ Jesus, uniting with him by the power of the Holy Spirit for life, let today be your day. And if you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about, come talk to me. Let's make it happen. Let's work it out. Let's seek the Lord together. And if you're hearing this for the 10 millionth time, then hear it again, because I'm going to do it again next week and the week after that. We don't graduate from the gospel. Growing up from spiritual milk into solid food isn't getting that right so we can move on. It's not graduating from Christ. It's going deeper into Christ. It's mining the depths of the wonders of Christ and finding him to be worthy over every corner of our lives in order that he can reign and get great glory through our lives. That's the pursuit of the Christian life. So to trade in the gospel for that is to not understand the gospel at all. So believe it again with me.